Hi, I'm Chloe Hilliard, and you're listening to Drinks with Tony. And I'm the Drinks with Tony Show. Yeah. You're listening to Drinks with Tony. I'm your host, Tony Duchesne. Today on the show, we have Chloe Hilliard. She's the author of Fuck Your Diet and Other Things My Thighs Tell Me. She's a stand-up comedian and works as a warm-up comic for a TV show, and she also hosts her own podcast, Social Misfit. Hi, Chloe. Hello. How are you? I'm good. Did I get through that introduction okay? Yes, you did great. I'm no longer a warm-up because I'm so busy promoting my book, but other than that, everything was great. So you ditched that job. How did you... Now, okay, so first off, tell tell people what a warm-up comic is, and then... Now we get, and then we'll find out how you left because I hope you burned bridges. <laughs> okay, did you really? Oh I, de- I definitely burned bridges. Okay, right. <laughs> I haven't told the story yet. So, a warm up comic is basically every talk show, even if it's like a game show, they have like a host, a comic that comes out before the show starts just to give pretty much like we're like the stewardess. Like, if you're on a plane and like here's your instructions of how to behave and what to expect, that's right. what we do. And then we also like mix some jokes to just get you hype and energized. And normally, you play games, you do this music. Hopefully, I had a DJ, so she and I work well off of each other. Just like 15 minutes before we go live, just to get everybody like up and moving in high energy, which was great. But then also it'd be weird because then you would have like like episodes where it's like my hu- my husband was a serial killer and killed 14 people, and you come back from break like, okay, guys, you ready for a more show? And so after a while, you're just like, I can't. This is killing my spirit. And so, I would- can I, I ask you a question real yes. quick? Yeah, you said killing my spirit because I would feel like that was zapping my soul. Yes. Because the, here's something I, I I dislike about a lot of things, is um, when things don't feel atten- authentic. They feel like they're manufactured authenticity. Anyway, and so it's got to be a really hard job. I mean, it sounds like the greatest job in the world, but then when you're doing it like constantly, and then you got weird shit like you know, oh, and coming up next, this wife beater, but he's a good fella. Everyone on your knees, yeah, on your head. Yeah, it is. It was kind of intense because you, a part of you was like, I'm a good comedian and I know my worth and I know that I yeah. like perform well and people like me. And then when you go out there and the crazy thing is that everybody loves me, like the audience loves me. And also daytime television audiences are people normally in their late 50s to 60s who are retired and all they do is go. to. So I was seeing repeat offenders and they would come and they knew that I was going to play a game. So they were trying to collect all of the prizes like like a McDonald's Happy Meal. And so they would come and be like, what, what, what are we getting today? I'm like, I can't keep picking on the same people. And so it was fun because it was like a community. But after a while, it's like, I need to go out there and like be amongst like people, my generation. <laughs> Not to sound like ages, but it's just a different, it's just a different things that you can talk about in a talk show environment versus like in a nightclub. Right. And fuck old people. Well, you know, they're great. I mean, they're, they're great. They always have good candy in their purses. No, that's, that's, um. Because you do stand-up, so you, it's like, it must, to get into the mindset, are you ever, like, doing warm-up? Were you ever doing warm-up and then thinking, oh, my God, I got a joke that would kill, and this is not the audience for it, and it just yeah. came to me? Oh, yeah, I definitely would be in the middle of doing a joke. Because once you do jokes for so long, I've been doing comedy 10 years, once you do it, you go on autopilot. Like, you can just go into a joke, and then you just know what the whole joke is. And there would be times where I had to stop myself because the punchline was just not great for a daytime television audience. This is I'm also doing this at, like, 9 o'clock in the morning. And so I would have to, like, cut like right before it was like oh too explicit or too like too raunchy or too crass or too political and so I would catch myself and have those moments but I ended up wrapping that show up because I knew that I had to start doing a lot of press for my book and so I left in like 
around Thanksgiving I left okay. and um, I gave him a date and then I quit the day before that date because, <laughs> because I just was like I'm done I'm not even coming back for the last day yeah so I definitely burnt that bridge so do, what do you think they did for that last day? Because someone has to come in and take that. Was there like, did they have to get a PA and just go, um, hey, hey, fella, um, guess what? Get this audience going. Yeah, so once I told them that I was leaving, for some reason, there was like a producer on the show who thought that he could do the job. And so he would start coming out and try to do the job while I'm doing the job. And so I was like, oh, I'm just done. I'm finished. And I recommended a friend of mine. He's a comic. He does warm up. So he's taken over for me. And I hear now that he also hates it. <laughs> But the money is really good, from what I understand. The money is really good. I want all right. If I can remember, I think it was. You're gonna give me numbers. Yeah, I think it was like twenty-five a week, twenty-five hundred a week. Like like five hundred, like either four or five hundred shows, twenty-five hundred a week. It's also SAG, so it's part of the union. So it was great because it helped me get health insurance. Oh yeah, because you got to make that minimum. Mm-hmm. Yeah. See, see. That's why people don't leave warm-up comedy jobs because it's an easy gig. You got you had to do three days a week, and yeah, that's not a lot of commitment. And then you go to the dentist. Yeah, right. I get a checkup, a full checkup, and I get my results back in two weeks instead of nine months. (laughs) (laughs) Everything's for health insurance. What is wrong with us? No, that's why we got to change this whole system so we can do what we really want to do and not be beholden to a shitty job for benefits. Yeah. So you, but you got to you got to quit the gig. And then now you're on book tour. Thank you. Thank you for hanging out with me, by the way. Absolutely. Yes. The weather's nice. It was chilly yesterday. So today's a better day. Yeah. yeah. Today was, I actually had my like wool coat on yesterday and fit right in. Yeah. Um, but yeah, I'm, I'm excited. I, I came to LA on my way to San Francisco. I'm doing the sketch fest this weekend. And so, yeah. So I'm from San Francisco. Oh, cool. It's my first time performing there. So I'm excited. I, I've heard great things about the festival. Oh, no. They're pieces of shit. <laughs> I've heard great things. I'm going to say I've heard great things until I go there. And I'm like, you're absolutely right. Uh, but yeah, so I just came here. I have friends here. I've been, I've come, you know, probably I'm trying to come here at least twice a year, but I, I'm going to start coming more often because I think the next phase of my career is to just really keep the momentum going with writing, get into screenwriting and like television film. And I would love to direct and produce. What is it about New York coming to L.A.? Because I, I kind of feel that's a lot of people. People will establish themselves a bit in New York and then they're like, L.A. is my next move. And it's, it's kind of sad because I feel like New York should also be the kind of hubbub. Yeah. It depends on what your direction is in your career. So for me, I was a journalist before I was a comedian, so I always have this writing bug with me. And then the book kind of like cemented that. The book is the first time I wrote long form since I started comedy. And so it was just hard to just open up that side of the brain because writing a joke and writing a long manuscript is two completely different things. And then also had research in it too. So in my books, so I really had to do a lot of digging. So it was like a lot of wormholes. You know, I mean, not wormholes, rabbit holes, like just going into Google and search and search. So it was just a completely different train of thought. And I think what happens is in comedy in New York City, either you decide that you want to be like the best stand-up ever, and then you just do all of that work, which is you perform as often as possible in New York, and you get your reps up, and then you get your time up, and then you hit the road, and you go from all of the small markets to work your way to the large markets, and then you have a fan base, and you can just say, I'm going to be at this theater on this day, on a Tuesday, and it sells out. Like, that's the dream. And then the other the other range is to say, I want to be the best comedian that I can be and be undeniable in New York City. And then from there, I want to take my talents to L.A. because that's where you make the big money by writing the projects. Because film and television is based in L.A. It's not in New York City. And if you write in New York City, you're basically just writing for late night talk shows. You're not doing scripted television. And that and 
that I used to think about that gig and I'd be like, oh my God, that would be so rad to get. And then I, and then now I've been, you know, around some stuff and I'm like, no, that, I don't want to do that. That's, that's, that sucks the whole brain into how am I going to craft the news bits into middle America happiness for a voice of someone that's not even me. And you have to sterilize everything. And, and, and it's like you're talking to a grown adults like they're toddlers. And it's like stop pacifying them and let's have real conversations. When you look at late night talk show hosts, you know, like Merv Griffin going back to the 60s and 70s, like people had full, long, in-depth conversations. It wasn't all this ADD, like, you know, cut hair, stop this joke, just do a sketch. It was like this we're having, we're adults. It's late night. We're having a conversation. And we don't really have that anymore. And also for me, you know, I know this may sound like just like not controversial, but like I really have no interest in writing for the late night talk show market because it's just all white guys and I don't want to write for all white guys. And I know that sounds like it sounds like nobody wants to hear that, but it's just that's not the voice that I want to cater to because they, they've already been doing it. So let's hear another voice. Let me tell you, if Oprah was doing a show, they would not hire me because I could not get in. I mean, I would I would. I would probably do a better job than on a, a late night, but but at least I would, you know, I don't know. You're looking at me like I'm fucking crazy right now. No, but I but I know, and I just actually I just tweeted something about this because someone was mad about Stephen King saying that he doesn't like write for diversity, right? And so Stephen King has been writing for what 30, 40 years, and he said he admits that he doesn't write for diversity. That's not what he thinks about when he writes his books. And somebody got mad about it, and I said, you know, instead of us getting mad about a writer or director not having diversity, you should be mad at the studio or the book publisher for not hiring more diverse people. Like, it's hard to force someone who is writing about their life to include something that, that they don't know to be genuine to them just to make you feel better. So instead of you forcing Stephen King to write, you know, about, like, you know, black people, Hispanic people in his small, sleepy town murder mystery, you should say to the people with powers that be who have the power and the money to greenlight projects, greenlight projects from other directors and writers who actually have a unique and interesting point of view in life that's reflective of non-white people. And so I think we we always want to blame somebody and it's like, yeah, there is always somebody to blame, but sometimes it's not the person you think you should be blaming. I feel like we need to have, is in storytelling across the board for novels, for film and everything, that it has to come from an authentic, honest voice. And so for someone like Stephen King to just throw some diversity in there, it's going to lose all honesty. So, it's yeah, he has to write his thing. I got to write my thing. I am nowhere near Stephen King, and I may never even be, you know, near the bottom of it. But at the same time, I have to write, it's like, even when I read books, like when I, when I was reading your book, there was, there was, there was a purity and honesty to it. And they, I, I like how it comes off as comedic, but there's there's more to it. There, there's deeper to your book. It's and I love when a comedian doesn't just go pa da pa pow pa da pa pow. You craft you crafted things that make people think. And that was very important to me because I realized that a lot of times when someone sees that a comedian wrote a book, it is just jokes or rehashings of funny experiences, especially as a woman. I didn't want it to be gratuitous. I didn't want it to be this voyeuristic look in my life and, you know, like me pulling back the curtain and showing all my flaws. I wanted to do that, but also wanted to leave people with some information. And I think me talking about my issues with body image and weight and being a tall kid or a big kid 
is something that people can relate to. But also, when we always have the conversations of weight and body shaming, it's always easy for people to say, oh, well, you should just lose weight or you should just do this. And I'm like, I've shown from research and experience that it's deeper than just saying someone should stop eating carbs. Like, there's so many other, like, social political things that influence how we eat in this country. And I think a lot of times you blame the person who's just doing the best that they can do with the, the resources that they have available to them. And that also has blown my mind because I haven't really figured that out until the last five years about um, what kind of food you can get in certain neighborhoods where there's no, there is not a Whole Foods in every neighborhood. There's a, there's a corner store. There's Aldi's, and that's why Aldi's just about two two years ago announced that they were going. Aldi's was a like a cheap market, and it was a lot of processed foods and canned foods. And they just announced in two years that they were going to be moving to having fresh produce and fresh meats because they realized that they were serving a community of people who did not have access to other supermarkets. And so for them to say, we're making this change because we want to enrich the lives of our consumers, most shopping stores don't say that. That's like McDonald's saying, we're only we're going to a fresh salad bar now because we want to serve people better. And you'd be like, what? McDonald's knows how to fuck up salad. I have never had anything good there. Now they're like, impossible burger. And I'm like, I ain't going anywhere near yeah, that. It's it's so stupid. I guess it's for people who don't have access, who are like, I'm vegan now. And they're sitting there like having five impossible burgers, you know. And I body shame those people. No, I have no problem with that. Yeah, I mean, they don't know that they're eating something that's like two ingredients away from a yoga mat. They have no idea. It is. It really is. They just don't know that. But they but because that's just the way marketing marketing works, marketing works and marketing convinces us to become brand loyalists. You know, you have people who only drink Coke, who only drink Pepsi and and they and they pass it to their kids. And that's all they know. It's like your dad telling you what your favorite sports team is. And you're like, okay, that's just what it is. So, unfortunately, I'm a San Francisco Giants fan because I grew up across, you know, and that's where all my, you know, all my peers when we were eight years old, it's like, the Giants, the Giants, man, you know, the A's suck because they're across the bay. And, you know, that was was our world. But then there's this weird, like, oh, sense of home. And it's the same thing with Pepsi or Coke. If you got the sense of home, then you get a Pepsi somewhere else. I'm trying to reprogram my brain for many years to like let go of a lot of these things that I go, wait a second, I'm only doing that because uh, this happened when I was eight, this happened when I was 12. Because you're indoctrinated to so many things. And even when it comes to food, like, you know, being a black woman, I come from a heritage of Southern cuisine. And it's interesting because my dad is from Indiana. So he's like Midwestern food and it's like gross. And so we always like the Southern food options more. So if my mom and my dad were cooking, we would be like, well, who cooks? And then we're like, oh, mom cooked. We're like, okay, I know it's going to be good. My dad is just like a little different. And so, like, he puts, like, uh, sugar on his grits. It's just a mess. Oh, my God. Yeah, yeah. It's a mess. He's a mess. He's very, he's very mid- Midwestern. Um, he's all, it's pure white cane sugar, though, so yeah, we're good. I know, right? I know. And so growing up with my mom, because my mom's family was mostly in, in Brooklyn where we grew up. My dad's family is mostly in Indiana, so I wasn't around them as much. But my grandmother is from South Carolina, and so she is a quintessential Southern matriarch and, you know, make everything from scratch, and we never got fast food. I only went to McDonald's, like, once a year or, like, maybe my birthday. Like, everything was cooked at home, and we sat down, and we had dinner every night at the table. And so, but a lot of the things that we were eating wasn't necessarily nutrition like nutritionist it, like nutrition full of nutrition I'm sorry I'm like blubber my words but it wasn't no, necessarily wholesome foods it was what was passed down from generation to generation and so when you put you have yeah you have collard greens but you have like 
a whole tub of lard in it for seasoning. And then, so I was like the first in my family, once I started educating myself in college and trying to get my health underway, I told, and I also stopped eating red meat and pork. And so I told my parents, I was like, yeah, if you're going to make collard greens, can you make some for me without the meat in it, please? And so they would, and then they realized it tasted better than what they were used to, and so they stopped putting meat in it. And so now every once in a while they'll put like turkey, a little bit of turkey, which is fine. But, you know, even them, it's like I had to shock the system and be like, you know, there's other ways that we can eat these foods. It's just as great, but just better for us. And so they're slowly, they've come around. I mean, it's I've been changing and pushing this fight for like, 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 like the last 15, 20 years. And so they're starting to like see where I'm coming from. Yeah, because I mean, when I'm eating a tub of lard, I don't want <laughs> collard greens in it, you know. Yes, it's like I don't even know where you buy lard at. It's just like also I remember like um like, like back fat and I was like what the hell is back fat and it was like my grandma's like go to the butcher and give me some back fat I need it and I was like I don't even know what that is and you just go and it's just like this tub of wide this white wide hunk of thing and you just put it and I was like I can't do it. I can't do it like this I didn't want to continue that and I and I know it seems like to some people it may seem like I'm not embracing my my heritage but I think a lot of times we associate heritage with food. And those foods aren't necessarily beneficial for us when you look at just like long-term health effects. In my family, it's diabetes, it's hypertension, it's like high blood pressure, high cholesterol. And a lot of those things are traceable to foods. And a lot of times we say that it's genetics. Like, oh, it runs in my family. It's like, no, your family's history of eating these foods leads to these ailments that you consider to be genetic. And they're not always genetic. See, I'm half Norwegian. So I'm predestined to commit suicide, and I'm not giving into that. So, yeah, I don't know why Norwegians love to commit suicide. I guess it's like the honorable thing. Is that's that like that that warrior mentality? I guess. No, I think it's like hold it in, push it down, push it down. Can't take it anymore. That's true. Yeah. That's true. Yeah. <laughs> Nothing like me bringing it down. I'm so sorry that no, we. No, no. Listen, every every culture has their own way of coping with things. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> so, yeah, yeah. Well, that's finished. Yeah. <laughs> that story's done. <laughs> um, being now, this is intriguing to me because um, when, when I, I used to be married, and she was short, and I didn't realize that I had a perspective on things in life just because I was six foot. So we would go see, you know, we go to shows and we see bands or. And that's when I real that's when I realized, oh wait, not everybody can see the band. And it and then also I I tend I noticed and I even looked at old photos of me when I was a teenager, I was always kind of I was bending down so I can hear. And uh and it's it's just I noticed little tweaks that I was doing in my behavior just because I was tall. And it, it just it blows my mind that we really our point of view is just our point of view and to think you know, like a tall woman it's a completely different story, and then, it's, then I'm, I'm really going far here. And just, um, you might give me a weird look after this, but I've even heard like when it comes to uh, men and women, women are looking for men that are taller than them. So when, if you're six foot, just as far as the animal of us in our species, so if you're six foot tall, you just lost like, you know, you lost Tom Cruise, you lost Ben Stiller. <laughs> Absolutely. Yeah, they're short. You don't realize how short leading men are until you're around them. I realize this about, like, movie stars. They're they're really short, and they have huge heads. They do. Like, really? they really have big heads. Like, in person, you're like, that's like a physically. big, physically huge heads. Really? Yeah, I don't know what it is. I think I think they just gravitate towards films, so they look big on, like, the big screen. It doesn't, it doesn't look big on a big screen. Yeah. 
I think it's just like a little tw thing that you notice. But um, but yeah, I know my height. I'm six one. I've been the Titans since I was twelve, and it's definitely shaped my life. It's wow. Yeah, yeah. Since you were twelve, that has got a. I mean, just because you're growing into yourself, and then all of a sudden you're you know six foot taller than well, four foot taller than a lot of your classmates. Yeah, it, and I was always at the end of the line, you know, in the, in the elementary school, they put you in, like, size order, so whatever you went somewhere, you had to get in size order, so I was always at the end of the line. Size shaming. Yeah, size shaming, and I was the youngest, so it was just, it was just this, like, weird paradox where I was, like, emotionally, I was the, the youngest, most vulnerable person, but physically, I was the biggest, so they thought that I was, like, in control, or I was, you know, like, bossy, and, and was, like, running the show, and it was like, that's not the case at all, at all. Now... Tell me that you used your height to buy cigarettes for your friends and to buy alcohol early. You know, let me tell you something. I remember I was in high school and I tried to get a fake ID. I tried to go into the village and there was like places on West 8th Street where you can go and be like, hey, you know, I want to get a... And I went in there and they thought I was an undercover cop. And so what they did was they all knew each other. All the vendors knew each other because they all knew they were selling illegal IDs. So they all called each other and was like, there's a girl, woman who's coming in. Don't let her, like, she's an undercover cop. You yeah. got blacklisted? I got blacklisted by the bootleggers because they thought I was a cop. <laughs> For real. <laughs> and, and you would think you would have an advantage in that situation. Yeah. No, I just didn't. I mean, thankfully, I grew up in New York City when they weren't really big on checking IDs. So, like, if you just went to a club and you had, like, extra $20, they would just let you in. One time I, I was with all my friends and they had fake IDs and I didn't have one. And so I was like, no, I'm 21. He was like, when were you born? And I just knew the year and I made it the end. He was like, okay, well, look at that camera and flash your birthday. And I was like, what? He was like, do the, like, put it on record that that's your age. And I was like, okay, with your hands. And so in my head, I was like, okay, 19, 19, like I was just trying to do the math, uh, like just flashing my fingers. It was just so, he didn't care, but it was just to cover his ass in case he got busted. Well, we, that was a different time, especially for me. I remember when I was a kid, you know, we were like 16 driving to a Red Hot Chili Pepper show in San Francisco. We're like, we got to get wasted. So we just went to a liquor store and we walked in there and we were like, hey, man, we're going to go see a band. And, you know, could you just like, could you just hook us up with some rum? Because that was the only drink we knew, you know, and they're like, he's like, no, I can't, man. We're like, come on, man. It's just like, and we talked him into it within like four minutes of just appealing to his like, you know what? You guys need to get wasted tonight. You're driving. You need to drive and get wasted and go see a band. I don't think that would ever happen no, now. It was a different time back then. I think people, I don't know. I think people realize that it's something that's like youthful bliss, you know, and, and he probably was reliving his teen years through you. Like I remember when I had my first road trip with my friends, but yeah, we're different. I think also just people don't even know people today especially kids they don't have a limit they don't know when to stop right. there is there's there the idea of like safety it doesn't even come into play like they are and they they think they're invincible so it's just they push it way way harder i mean we did too i'm lucky to be alive in so many situations i'm going we did what <laughs> you know i'm like the world was different the world was different and also i think if you were in a situation where you were like crazy there was an adult nearby who would have stepped in but now i don't yes. think people step in people don't step in you're right. People used to step in. They used to say, hey, you don't, they would yell at us. And people don't do that anymore. And that kept us in check. How did we lose that? Because, because people started feeling like they were imposing and then they would be criticized for it. Or they would, or the kids would yell at them or beat them up. Or now everybody has a phone and they would take the camera out and just videotape you instead of like saving your life. 
And what's in, what would be great about that is we are kind of a village and a tribe mentality, and, and it takes a village to like let kids know, hey, you're fucking up in a huge way, and a unknown person is going to tell you to your face. And I mean, we I had a lot of shame when I was a kid, and but I also adjusted and went, oh crap, okay, I can't throw rocks at that window anymore because I will be shamed. And, and also, it's also we don't have we really don't have the sense of community when you think about just like how communities change and neighborhoods change. It's not like you don't. I don't. I mean, I've lived in the same neighborhood for ten years, and I know maybe three or four of my neighbors. You know, so there's also that accountability, and I and my and some of those neighbors they have kids, and so I I see those kids doing something. I'll say something to those kids, but if there were kids who I don't know, I won't say anything to those kids because it's just like that's not my place, and then I don't know. You know, it's like a whole other thing. Yeah. Oh man, these the good old days, huh? Isn't that great? I know, right? We should all live in Pleasantville. All the twenty-somethings are going. Old people suck when they listen to this. <laughs> They're ageist. Yeah, They're ageist. Yeah, definitely ageist. <laughs> Unless it's my age, yeah, right? Even my generation, I'm looking at like I, I think I have a completely different life than most of the people in my generation because I'm 39, single, no kids, and there's a lot of us who aren't married and don't have children. But like more and more of my friends are having kids now, and it's just like I don't know who you are anymore. <laughs> the, um, grow, uh, oh, I was just going to ask you something. I completely lost my thought. So you've been 10 years in Brooklyn, and where, but you grew up somewhere yeah, else so in New York. Live, yeah, I'm from Brooklyn, born and raised in Brooklyn, but 10 years in this neighborhood. I live in Bed Stuy. Yeah, I grew up in Williamsburg. I grew up in a Hasidic Jewish neighborhood. And so that was a whole nother thing that you just add to the misfit pot. And and that's also why I call my podcast Social Misfit. It's a double entendre. Social Misfit meaning like, you know, I've always felt like I was an outcast. And then also I use social media as like an entry point when I interview people. So if you were on my podcast, we would start with one of your tweets or posts. And I'll have you break it down and explain what that meant. Oh, I love that idea. Okay, I'd love to be on your podcast. Thanks for the invite. Yes, of course. Next time I'm here, I have more time. We're definitely doing it. Or I'll come to New York because I like going to New York. You've been trying to move to Brooklyn. We should we should do a, a swap. We should do an apartment swap. Yeah, yeah, yeah. All right, it's it's on record. Okay. And I uh, and e- and then if you never even get in touch with me again, I'll just I'll keep retweeting that soundbite to you. <laughs> Let's do it. Let's do it. It'll be like that stalker Duchesne in like the L.A. You know what? I might not even move to L.A. because that guy's so fucking crazy. Well, L.A.'s big, so I could avoid you. <laughs> L.A.'s really big. There's a whole like. If you have, you can't have friends in Venice or Santa Monica if you live in Los Feliz, because that's like it's easier to take a flight to Japan. Yeah, that traffic is crazy, and people who live there always say that that's the best place to live. But that's also because they don't ever want to leave that area. Like Santa Monica, they don't ever want to leave Santa Monica. And then I go there, and I'm all, yeah. <laughs> it's like it's like you it's like you walked into a beachside resort, and you're like, put a shirt on. Yeah. Why are you running? Stop. Get off the bike. Put your shoes on. Yeah, <laughs> uh, yeah that's... That, yeah, oh, my God. Don't get me started on, like, wearing flip-flops in restaurants. I got this old, like, respect thing. You wear pants and you wear shoes when you go to eat. I don't want to see your toes. There's no toes in this. That's true. I agree. No toes. No toes for dinner. So what was it like growing up? Because I, I was just in Williamsburg, and I love Williamsburg. I mean, I was like... I went, oh, crap. This is my energy. But I know that it wasn't the same way when you grew up. Was it a trip when, like, you know, beautiful people like me started moving in? (laughs) So I grew up in a Hasidic Jewish part. So Williamsburg has two parts. There's the Hasidic Jewish part, which is on the 
north on the south side of like Metropolitan Avenue. Like Metropolitan Avenue was kind of like the dividing line. And so before, if you went to the other side of Metropolitan, which is now known as like the north side, that's where all the Polish and like Eastern European folks lived, and and they didn't really speak English. They had all their own mom and pop shops. It was like you go there to get like the butcher. They made like fresh sausage. Like it was very like old world in Brooklyn feeling. And then also there was a big, strong Hispanic community as well on that side. And so everybody just stuck to their own little, like, enclaves. And then on where I, the side I grew up on was the Hasidic Jewish side. And so because they have so many kids and their masses just swell up, they started encroaching on all the other, like, other parts of the neighborhood. And so it wasn't until, like, the hipsters started moving in and then people started buying those buildings that the Jewish people would buy and renovate for their growing community that there was, like, a real clash because... The Hasidic Jewish people didn't like the fact that they didn't have their neighborhood anymore. And the next thing you know, the city puts like a bike lane down and then the Hasidic Jewish community boycotted a bike lane because they said they didn't want to see women on bikes with like skirts because it would offended their religious sensibilities. And so they who doesn't like women on bikes and skirts? Really? Jewish people don't. And so they got the city to erase the bike lane. And so it was a lot of that stuff. And they would they would put up sign like they, for the first time in like, you know, 30, 40 years, they had their neighborhood being taken away. And I was kind of like in the mix of all of it. And so a part of me is when you talk about like the affinity of wanting to live where you live and have like, you know, these like sweet memories. I definitely was anti-gentrification because it just changed everything everything went up everything was more expensive everything was crowded now there's traffic jams just like the sheer volume of people that enter into this like neighborhood because Williamsburg is along the water and so it used to be um, it used to be industrial and so they rezoned it and so like all of those factories like the Domino Sugar Factory is now like exclusive like 2.5 million dollar condos and so now you have like a water a park a, a waterside like park and a trail and a hike and all of these things and you're just like oh this is not the neighborhood I grew up and it was kind of hard and so I left and I moved away because I couldn't even afford to live there and so I moved to Bedside Brooklyn that also started to change and so like you were saying before we started like now you can actually find an apartment in Manhattan that's cheaper than in Brooklyn. I, I when I went I was staying with because uh, you know I don't got I don't have like I had to be in uh, New York for two weeks and I wasn't getting paid but I was doing something really cool so uh I had to I had to get accommodations and I was like looking at Airbnb and I'm like that ain't on my list and then I ended up getting through an actor friend of mine she had three actors that lived in a Bushwick and they had a room and it was just and they're like oh yeah okay oh he's cool it was like really cheap I stayed right on Morgan Ave uh, stop on the L train and I fell in love with that little Bushwick area where it just felt like well no there was I was also very irritated I walked to another uh, area and it was like a very hip part of Bushwick where it was like a big beer garden and the music was pumping out. And I was going, I would kill people if I lived here. I would kill people. I'd kill a hipster. Yeah, for sure. There's a lot of people not aware of like their noise pollution. They don't, and, and then they, what they do is they come and they complain about the people who've been doing it for 20 plus years. Like there's a large Hispanic community in Bushwick. And so there's certain streets where you just know they're just going to play their music all day long because it's a part of like the businesses. The businesses will put the speakers out to draw customers in. And so then like when people started moving in, they were complaining about the sound, the noise. And then they turn around and open up a beer garden and you're like, well, what the hell is that? <laughs> Same thing happened in San Francisco. Like the people were moving in from the suburbs, and they're like, "Oh, let's stay in the cool part of like in Soma, where it was like crime and a lot of live bands. We can go see live bands like 
every night of the week. And then they would come in and go, well, that needs to be shut down because blah, blah, blah. And then they had the lobbying money and whatever. And venues got shut down left and right because these people were trying to raise their families in South of Market. And I'm like, you don't raise a family in South of Market. Now you do. <laughs> so. And it changes everything. It just changes the fabric of community. So when you talk about why don't we speak up and, and interject when we see something happen, it's like you don't know who your neighbor is. You don't know what their intentions are. You don't know what the, what the backlash is going to be. And a lot of times people don't say anything because it's just an act of like self-preservation. Yeah. I've noticed in Los Angeles, then the and they're, the kids are doing it, and they're in their teens and early twenties, and they're putting on punk shows and Boyle Heights and backyard parties and like down in Inglewood, and I'm sitting there, and these are the shows I want to go to, but if I go to these shows, they'd be like, oh my God, whose dad is here? Someone's in trouble, and they, and they would beat me up because they wouldn't. If you just tell them you're a music critic here to review, I'm sure they would. Get, you have to have like a little press badge, <laughs> and they'll let you in. <laughs> oh my God, because because they're fame whores now, like. In my day, if Rolling Stone came in, we'd be like, fuck them, yeah, kick them out. Yeah, but like, get the establishment out of here. This is pure music. Now you're just like sending a press release. Like, I will be playing in my parents' backyard at 7.30 p.m. Yeah. Instagram, hashtag, hashtag, hashtag. Yes, absolutely. All right, what else can we bitch about? <laughs> I don't know. Let's see where we are. Oh, I'm good. I, have, I got time. Um... Yeah, no, I'm I'm excited to see what the year is gonna bring. I'm, I I don't come to LA often, but I, I'm gonna start coming here. So, do you have any tips for, for me for trying to come to LA more often? Well, what you should probably do is take a plane and not drive. Got it. Yes, I won't drive. I won't, but I do want to bring my car here though, because I don't want to rent a car for like a month. Oh, you gotta have a car here. It's yeah, that, I, that's the thing I don't like about it because I didn't even have a car for many years. I didn't have a car for like 13 years, and then I came down here and I had to have a car, and then I felt like I was 16 again because I'm like, wait a second, I'm not pushed up against people's armpits, and I can like listen to my own music, and it was like freeing, and you know, and then and even now it's like I'm in traffic, I'm sitting there going. I'm in my living room, you know? This is, uh, <laughs> yeah, I'm fortunate I have a car in New York City, and it definitely helps a lot. And so I know I have to have a car in L.A. I, I, I haven't even tried to do public transportation here. Yeah. I, I'm, I'm, I'm intimidated. And I'm from New York City. but And our system stinks, but at least it runs regularly. Yeah, well, yeah, exactly. I, I do love the subway. Uh, and there are some bus lines that are rad, uh, like the Sunset 2 bus, because I live right off of Sunset. So if I want to go see a band, like maybe in West Hollywood or in Echo Park, I'm the only dude on the bus because no one takes the bus here at midnight. And it's almost like I have a chauffeur for two bucks, you know. Oh, that's nice. That's nice. A, a nice empty bus, it, it is luxury. It is. It feels great. Yeah. But when it's crowded and you have to push past people. Or when someone who's talking to themselves, you're just like, oh, we're all trapped. What's great about people talking to themselves is everyone's got these stupid earbuds now, which is the Bluetooth of our generation, which Bluetooth is bad. Earbuds are bad. And they're just, they're just talking to themselves. I, I, I almost want to just bring myself into their conversation and like react to what they're saying. I also like when I'm in when I do have to take the train to New York City and someone comes on and they're like panhandling and like begging. Oh, yeah. I want to be like you need to have a sign. Like we can't hear you. And I remember one time this actually like was like so heartbreaking and it was like a man and he wasn't begging. He just was like entertaining. He, like it was bringing him joy. Like it's just his thing. Like I go on a train and I sing a song or do a ditty. I don't know. But he's like you know I want to engage people. That's his way of like interacting. 
And so he was doing that, and then a couple stops after he was doing that, nobody was reacting to him. Nobody was listening because they had earbuds in. And then a woman came on, and she was, like, begging for money. And he tells he was like, listen, no one hears us anymore. They don't. He was like, no one, everybody's in their own world. And he's, like, talking to her. They're having a full-on conversation, and I hear it because... Uh, Full disclosure, my um, my phone died, so I just had my earbuds in, but I could hear them. Yeah. And he he says, you know, they don't understand. Like people like us, sometimes we just want to interact, and we don't have the interaction anymore. And people just don't talk to people. And you could just hear him saying, like, this is what he want. He just wanted to interact with folks, and he can't have that because now everybody is listening to earbuds. And you realize how people are just starved for human contact. And even though we are a very populated country or city, whatever you live, people are still feel very lonely. And you didn't. Re- I didn't realize that he, this was his way to fight loneliness was to go into the subway and perform. Good for him. I, I feel like we're getting this loneliness thing because of the social media, which keeps the two dimensional. So we feel like we're like we have our people, but you don't. You don't got people, and everyone's lying on social media. Uh, yeah, yeah. I, I, you know, I cut you. I see you, and I'm like, okay, I'm gonna tell you what's really irritating me now, and it's, it's, you know, I, I could tweet it to you, and it wouldn't mean anything, but in person, it the communication's everything, and. You know, I'm not sitting there waiting for you right now to reply to my tweet every five seconds like I usually do when I tweet you. <laughs> yeah, I think we are going to get to a point where people start to interact more. I think also that's why people love podcasts so much. I mean, I started a podcast like 10 years ago. It was like blog talk radio and you would call in and it was like your own little hub. Like it felt like a radio station and people were like, what is that? And then now everybody has a podcast. And I think it's has less to do with the popularity of the platform than it is that people are alone and they can hear someone talk and that's really what it is yes and also going back to the late night talk show which i mean even those interviews are scripted and there's produce you know there's you know segment producers coming and going this is what you're going to talk about don't say this word use this and we can get on we can listen to a podcast conversation and this is where we can have, you know, this is the days where, you know, when you used to watch uh, the Tonight Show or whatever, everyone was smoking cigarettes and had vodka in their cups. Absolutely. Or oh, like even like even like um, Playboy. Remember Playboy at night? Oh, I remember Playboy. I was a kid, you know. Well, no, but like the talk show, the late night talk show, it was like, yeah, they used to have this uh, Playboy. I think it was called Playboy After Dark. or No, I don't remember what it was. Were there naked people? No naked people. This See, was, I never, I wouldn't have watched that. This was like, this, this, was, this was way before my time, but this was like in the, in the, like the 60s. And so oh, okay. Hugh Hefner, it was like a, it was like a loft penthouse and it was like all of these pretty women, but everybody was dressed and then it would just be like, oh, hey, there's Sammy Davis Jr. Come over here and sit down and talk. And they would just have like these long form conversations. Yeah. I even get envious when I look at like there's a French talk show and it's a long form talk show and they have like maybe like 10 people on a panel and they just go into like one topic and they just I was like we don't have that here like we have it but it just gets reduced to sound bites or it's on a network or it's on like a cable network where people don't see it but like I just I wish we could have like especially with the political election coming up I feel like we need to have like real people having conversations not like this curated town hall but just like people talking about what is important to them and like weighing in on topics that we don't really hear we always hear from experts we're like who the hell are these experts when I think of experts I think of a, a guy doing his jowls like this and they get paid like all of these pundits they get paid they get paid and they get talking points like you can't say that you have an expert coming in a way on something who's on a retainer like what they're there to say whatever is going to keep them coming back to that show 
It's all ratings. Okay, so I was just reading about that. What was that? I think the TV show was called Crossfire, where there's a Republican dude and a Democrat dude, and they sit there and they disagree about everything. I was reading the first season. They came together on many things, and it was like a kind of a bipartisan show, and the ratings were shit. When they both had to take a stance, the ratings went up, and there goes the, authentic, there goes the authenticity of their storytelling because now they're just shills in this bullshit Oh, it's like sports. I mean, politics is like watching sports now. And sports is even getting boring. It's, I don't even know what to do. That's why I do a podcast. That, that's, this is my sports, talking to you. We're, we're going back to the old days. People are reading books now. Oh, my God. Oh, please. Oh, say that. Can you say that again, but slower? People are reading books now. Oh, thank you. Okay. Say it again, but now with a German accent. No, I'm kidding. Uh, people are reading books, especially my book, Fuck Your Diet, and other things. <laughs> my thighs help you. Nice plug. I, I, I don't know if you've noticed, like, on the, because most of the time on this Drinks with Tony, we don't even talk about the book. And, um, and then every once in a while, I get someone who's, like, kind of up there in the publicity world, and they go, that brings up a good point. And you know my book, Fuck Your Diet. And I'm like, wow, you're, you're swinging this well. That was, the, that was the best opportunity. I wasn't sitting here plotting, but you said people are reading books. And I was like, yeah. It's interesting being a book author. It's weird. It's been a, a little over a week. I feel the same, but different. <laughs> okay. How do you... I, so I've, I have a book out, too, and I did a film as well. But how do you feel the same? Because... Um, First off, how do you feel the same? Yeah. Well, I mean, it's still me. I'm still the same person. I haven't changed. Um, and and I don't. I didn't look t- to the book to give me any sort of validation. So I didn't write the book. Oh, that's, he- that's healthy. Yeah, yeah. I didn't write the book. Okay. Like, when this comes out, everybody's going to understand. It, I didn't do it. Like, I wrote oh. it for me. I wrote it. Really, I wrote it for me. Um, and I realize now when I talk to people who've read the book that they relate to the book and that just that is how I feel different. It's like, OK, I'm not alone anymore in these in these thoughts about like food and diet and my body and, you know, cultural instances of how we are shaped. And so, so I get it. And I think that also feeling different. It's like now certain people look to me as like a wealth of information. And I'm like, you know, I'm just the same person. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Yeah, all of a sudden, they're, they're with a published book, you kind of get the little expert yeah. nudge, and you're just like, and me, I'm like, no, I'm the same idiot. I yeah. just I just know how to sit in a room and not talk to anyone and put in the work for five hours. Yeah, I feel like people, like part of it, when you say you're an author, it feels like people should call you like like Mrs. Chloe Hillier instead of just Chloe. It's like, no, 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 it's just me. I want Mrs. Tony Duchesne. That's I, so I expect that. You can have it. Put it in your Twitter bio. Make it real. <laughs> Isn't it funny when people make these grandiose declarations in their Twitter bio, and you're like, "Oh, okay, that's the announcement." Uh, I, I have less than a thousand Twitter followers, so um, so one, I, I suck on the social media platform. I even put social media dissuader on that. That's my thing. Yeah, the anti anti social media announcement. Right, which at you know at the same time, if I was you know a young punk in the 1980s, people would be like, "That's rad." Now they're like, "Oh, he's not going to get me anywhere. I'm not following him." Yeah, I think it's really sad when we put personal value on Twitter followers because it's just not that's not a that's not a good metric. It's not a good metric, and I think it's gonna it starts to bite people in the butt because they look at someone who has a lot of followers and then they hire them to do a job or to speak on something and they just don't have the substance. And so, I think the biggest thing is to learn is that you should not you, but in general, it's like you should stick to what you want to 
talk about and what represents you and the people will come. It's like if you build it. I almost don't want to be represented on social media as some as what I'm saying and what you know what my truth is. And I, I people, you know, I think people are a little confused when they like read my social media and then they meet me and they're like, "Oh, we th- we thought you were just like some boring old asshole," which I am. But there's there's layers to it. You know? There's definitely layers, and I think you have to decide what layers you want to show. So like with me, I am super into politics, and okay. you know, I'm democratic, and I can weigh in on who I think is a good candidate. Oh wait, so you know, so you're not into Trump? Oh, absolutely no. I mean, I was, but I like just like two weeks. Once they like once the articles of impeachment crossed over the floor, I changed. I changed over to the Democratic Party. Yeah, yeah. You're like, wait a second, he might be crazy. Now, okay, now I get it. Now I get it. Finally. But yeah, I knew I definitely have like a lot of viewpoints about like things that's happening in the world. But I also realized that a lot of times if you weigh in on those things on Twitter, two things happen. People may see you as like being angry and obsessed, even though you're not because just like one tweet or maybe seven, but whatever. Um, and the other thing is that you start to attract trolls. There's a lot of bots and trolls who seek out people who they feel like have somewhat of a platform so that they can bait you into an argument and then say, see, look, this person who you thought was a good person or this person has a book or this person has a movie or TV show, they just said X, Y, and Z. And so then it just turns into this like this machine that is like fueled to kind of like tear you down. We have too much access to people who have, you know, celebrity or certain status. I don't think we should have that access as much. And I think a lot of those people need to not have that access. Oh, yeah, I agree. Well, there's, there's a gift and a curse to that. It's like they should, they, I feel like they should be in control of their their image or their voice online. But then it also goes out of hand. You remember when Charlie Sheen was like on Twitter acting a damn fool? Well, that was fun. <laughs> but that was like, I want to say that was probably like our first like real time, real time celebrity meltdown, yeah. I, I would say. And now it seems like modest to everything else that we see. Yeah. 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 It's, yeah. It, what used to be crazy is just like it, it couldn't even get you attention now. Yeah. yeah. It can't. I, I don't know if you're, I don't know if you remember this because I'm older than you, but remember the whole rumor about uh, Richard Gere putting a gerbil up his ass? But yeah, yeah, yeah. It was folklore. See, that stuff we call that folklore now. If it was, if that happened today, it would be fact. Yeah. yeah, and it was just so much fun to think that Richard Gere would actually put a gerbil up his ass that everyone would just keep talking about it. Poor Richard Gere. I don't. I've never met him, but you know he's a human, and maybe he does want a gerbil in his ass, and that's not wrong. But listen, maybe all of that like negative press is what like propelled him to go to Nepal. Maybe he had to find sanctuary and, and find his inner inner monk. Yeah. And then they're like, in the Buddhism, we put gerbils up our asses. And he's like. Okay, fuck this religion. What else do you got? Is there, a, is there any Hindus in the house? Yeah, I think you, we have examples of like celebrities being exposed or, or taunted. It, it doesn't stop. I mean, a part of me, like, even if you think about the alternative, which is have celebrities or, or public people behind like this gilded wall of like protection, like in the golden era of Hollywood. I mean, they just curated it there, but they, they curated the story like in the press and they also actually curated their lives. Like they said who they were going to marry. They took pictures when they got pregnant. They showed like it was so controlled. So it's like you have to find a happy medium, I guess. Yeah, yeah. I want to be myself. I don't want anybody to control me, but I also need to protect what I want to share with the world so that people don't feel that they have the right to my life. Do you realize you just said your Twitter bio right there? That was great. 
I need to write it down. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, exactly. And if you don't write it down, then you're going to have to listen to this podcast. I'm going to listen to it right after this. <laughs> you know, it's, uh, um, I mean, I because you do your podcast and I know you interview people. I personally, I can't listen to, I just check levels. I don't listen or edit. And um, and I think it's so it saves my ass so when I can come here and just talk naturally to you. Because yeah. if I listen to this, I would be like, yeah, I ain't going out to the world. Yeah. So I, I, I don't know if you have a different approach when no, you do. I definitely, I listen to it. I listen to it all um, for clarity. And then I do like quick edits. Just like if something didn't sound right, if something was jumbled, I'll definitely edit it. But that also prevents me from releasing as many as I could because I am kind of a perfectionist. Like I'll yeah. sit and listen to it and I do the levels and the edits and everything. But then I'll be like, okay, that didn't make sense to me. Oh add a little context here. <laughs> but I need to let go and just, you know, press upload. Well, I mean, back in the day, I used to do this on radio. So I would, we would, ta- I would tape, and then there would be three segments with the author the first hour. So those were heavily edited. So they, and, and now it's just it's kind of such a freedom to just go up next. And but and it, I think the I think why I do that is because this part of the, doing the podcast is my favorite part. The in person is the best thing. It's the reason I do it. I don't do it so I can check levels and do posts. I like the editing process. I mean, I like really? the editing process. I like talking, but I also like the editing process because it feels it feels like I'm making it complete, you know. But I also realize that I, the part of when you, I don't over edit. Let me just make that clear. I don't over edit, but I do think that there is a certain level of vulnerability that people like to hear. They like to hear a fumble. They like to hear when you when you say, "Oh, I forgot what I was about to say." They want to hear that because it's a natural train of thought and it lets them know that it's an authentic experience. And like, even with me coming to LA, I came here on my way to San Francisco and I was supposed to have a show here, but I had to cancel my show because I had poor ticket sales. And so a part of me, a part of me was like, I just need to say what it is. Like if I try to lie and be like, oh, I had to reschedule, like that's just not authentic. And so even in my saying like, hey, my had poor ticket sales, I had to cancel. Like so many people supported me and like was like, well, let me know when the next one is. I'll definitely like it. It just it, people responded better to that than if I tried to like Hollywood gloss it over. Yeah. And that's when L.A. is a hard town because there's so much going on and to put on a show anywhere. Yeah, I've I've seen live bands in L.A. that would like in San Francisco they would sell out and the whole room would be a pit and everyone would be jumping all over each other, and there's like, you know, half the room of us just standing there and I'm going. It's a different culture for me down here. It is. It is very different, and that's what also I had to realize. It's like it's not necessarily a reflection of who I am and what my abilities are. It's just the market is a different market, and you just need to know what the market is. And I think that's the biggest thing about like even anybody in any walk of life. It's like you just need to know the room. Like as a comic, you say you just need to know the room. Like you need to walk in and understand who you're dealing with, what they like, what they respond to, and you have to not take it personally and not necessarily like super like you know bend over backwards but it's just like you know tip your hat to the room so you know they know that you are aware of their presence how are you so grounded i don't know (laughs) (laughs) fantastic thank you chloe for coming on the show (laughs) thank you for having me (laughs) chloe hilliard on drinks with tony check out her book 
fuck your diet and other things my thighs tell me. She's also performing at the Comedy Cellar in New York City February 10th through 12th, so check her out there. Coming up next week on the show, we have Bruce Cameron. He's the creator of the TV show Eight Simple Rules, based on his column and book, Eight Simple, Rule, Eight Simple Rules for Dating My Teenage Daughter. He's also the author of A Dog's Purpose, which became a movie, and his latest book, A Dog's Promise. Come back next week for more living affirmations, solid entrepreneur branding techniques, and social media dissuading. Thanks for listening to Drinks with Tony. I'm your host, Tony Duchesne. I will see you next Wednesday.